Let us turn in God's Word this evening to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. And consider for our text this evening the final four verses of Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. We will not reread that, so I ask that you pay special attention to the final four verses. Ephesians 2, verse 1, And you hath he quickened, dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, and the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore remember that ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were far off, and to them that were nigh. For through him, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together 
for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Thus far we read God's holy and inerrant words. May God add his blessing upon the reading of his holy scriptures. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit and the New Testament scriptures uses several different figures to illustrate for us the reality of the church. One figure that the Holy Spirit uses in the New Testament scriptures is the figure of a bride who is married unto the bridegroom. So we who are the members of the church then are the bride, who are married unto the groom, Jesus Christ. That picture that the scriptures use for us teaches us of the intimacy, the tender affection that Jesus Christ has for the church, as well the provision that Jesus Christ as the groom gives unto the church. Another figure that the Holy Spirit uses in the New Testament is the figure of a body. Jesus Christ is the head. We who are the members of the church are the members of the body. That indicates for us the diversity that is found within the church. For there are many different parts of that one body. And that indicates as well the headship or the rule of Jesus over the church and the duty that we then have as the members of the church to submit unto our head. But another picture or figure that the Holy Spirit uses to illustrate for us the reality of the church, which figure we look at this evening in Ephesians chapter 2, is the figure of a building, a home. The church is described as a house. It's the household of God. This church is built up on a foundation. Anyone who has the least level of familiarity with construction understands that there is a certain order of operations in building a home. You don't start with the roof. You don't start with the siding. But you begin the construction by laying a foundation. And then you build up the walls of that home and you finish off the interior of the home, and after the home is completed, then you move in, you inhabit the home. That same progression that we understand happens on the construction site is set forth by us in Ephesians 2, and especially verses 20 through 22. It starts with the foundation, verse 20 built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Then it moves to the construction of the home, the walls and the roof and the interior, as it were, in verse 21, 
in whom all the building fitly framed together grows unto an holy temple. And then it ends in verse 22 with moving into this home in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Let's consider then this text under the theme, A Building Fitly Framed. First, we'll consider her foundation. Second, her construction. Third, her habitation. The Apostle Paul describes for us the foundation of the church, especially in verse 20. You, who are the household of God, who are no more strangers and foreigners, you, verse 20, are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Every carpenter understands the importance of a good foundation. The builder wants the foundation to be as sturdy as reasonably possible. That foundation serves several important purposes. The foundation must be able to sustain the weight of the home. Many tons of pressure that will be exerted downward on this foundation, and that foundation must be able to hold that weight up. The foundation as well must be appropriate to the size of the home. It doesn't work to have a foundation that is smaller than the exterior walls of the home will be. And then as well, the foundation must be able to withstand upward forces, frost, as it heaves up things from the ground, a good foundation must be able to withstand forces coming from the bottom up. If a foundation is not sufficiently built, then it leads to problems in the home. There can Problems can begin with something as simple as cracks in the drywall, which indicate that one part of the home is shifting. There can be doorways which previously were square and the doors would shut well, but and if the home shifts a little bit, then that door doesn't shut well or it must be forced into place in order to latch closed. And in some situations, there can be a total failure of the foundation. Jesus describes this in the illustration that he gives of two different homes that were built. One home built on the foundation of sand and another foundation, another home that was built on the foundation of rock. And when the winds came and the storms beat against those homes, the children know what happened to that home that was built on the sand. Great was the fall of it. How important to the integrity of a home is the foundation. What then will be the foundation of the church? What more important structure is there on this entire earth than the church? Who is worthy 
to be the foundation of the church? Who has the strength to hold up the church so that she can stand steadfast, immovable against all of the assaults and tempests of the world that would beat against the church. The Apostle Paul describes the foundation for us. This foundation is the foundation of the apostles and prophets. When he speaks here of the foundation as being that of the apostles and the prophets, he is not saying that the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. That's the mistake that the Roman Catholic Church makes, that the church of Jesus Christ is built up upon Peter, and that there is an unbroken lineage from Peter upon which the church is built up. He does not say that the foundation is the apostles and the prophets, but that it's the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so the idea is that the foundation comes from the apostles and the prophets. The meaning then is that the foundation of the church is none other than the truths that were taught by the apostles and the prophets. To both of these categories, both apostles and prophets, a duty was given unto them to bring the word of God unto his people. The word apostles means those who are sent, those who are commissioned by Jesus Christ, given a message by Jesus to bring unto God's people. The apostle Paul testifies of his own apostleship. In Galatians 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who has raised him from the dead. Prophet. Prophet is one who bubbles over with the good news one who is so filled with the knowledge of God and has such great zeal for that understanding of God that he cannot contain himself, but he bubbles over with the word that God has given unto him. And so it is then that God used the apostles and the prophets to lay this foundation of truth. The Apostle Paul speaks of that reality. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10, we read there, According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, first to God, God is the wise master builder, I, Paul, have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. And so God used the apostles and the prophets to lay the foundation of truth. One foundation, but many different aspects of this one foundation. 
the apostles laid the foundational truth of the Trinity, that God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The apostles laid the foundational truth of the divinity of Jesus Christ. He is not just an exceptional prophet. He is not just a godly and pious example to be followed, but Jesus Christ is exalted because He is God. He was with God in the beginning. The apostles laid the foundational truth, not just of the divinity of Jesus Christ, but as well the humanity of Jesus Christ. He was born of a woman. It's of our flesh and of our bones. They laid that foundational truth that Jesus Christ has a real human nature, just as you and I have a real human nature, albeit a sinless nature. They laid down the foundational truth that Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man. They laid down that foundational, albeit very humbling truth of the fallen nature of man. Ephesians 2, verse 1, And you hath he dead in trespasses and sins. Lay down the foundational truth of the decree of election that God, according to His sovereign, free, gracious choice, determines some people to be His people. And he passed over others. They laid down the foundational truth regarding the Holy Ghost. That he proceeds not just from the Father, but also from the Son. And is sent forth as the promised comforter. Truth is the foundation upon which God is pleased to build up His church. But then Paul goes on in describing this foundation and he speaks of Jesus Christ. Second half of verse 20, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone in a sense, we may say not just that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the foundation, but we may say that Jesus Christ is the whole of the foundation. The Scriptures proclaim this. 1 Corinthians 3, which we read from earlier now, looking at verse 11. For other foundation, another foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. No other foundation can be laid than that which is Jesus Christ, the apostle testifies. And so we may speak generally of the truth that Jesus Christ is the foundation. He's the foundation in the sense that Jesus Christ is the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that Word was God. Jesus 
is the beginning and the foundation from a building perspective is the beginning. We may speak of Jesus Christ as the foundation generally because the foundation is the basis and Jesus Christ is the basis of man's salvation. It's only because of His work that man is righteous before God. But this text in Ephesians 2 verse 20 does not speak generally of the truth of Jesus Christ being the foundation, but it speaks specifically of Jesus Christ being the cornerstone of the foundation. Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. Cornerstone, what was that? Cornerstone was a vital part of the foundation. It was the very first stone that would be set in place as the builders constructed the foundation. It was necessary that this cornerstone be laid in the precise location and the precise orientation. It was from this cornerstone that then the rest of the foundation and subsequently the rest of the walls of the home would be built up upon. And so likely then the cornerstone would be the largest stone of the foundation. It could even be prominently displayed so that passerbyers would take note of that cornerstone. All of the rest of the structure fit around and depended upon that cornerstone. And so one then who was planning for that house or planning for the structure that would be built had to plan very carefully what this cornerstone would be like. How large would this cornerstone be? How would the other pieces of the foundation fit together with that cornerstone? What sort of weight would be pressing down upon that foundation and that cornerstone? How much wind would come in that area? How much wind resistance would there be from that structure that would eventually be built up upon that cornerstone? You see, all of the home started with the engineering around that cornerstone. Well, so it is, beloved, in the church. You see, Jesus Christ is suited perfectly as the cornerstone for the church. What does the church need? God had in His mind already determined the church. That the church would be glorious. The church would be beautiful. The church would be brought into heaven itself to dwell with God. And so... As God in His eternal counsel de determined this church, what would make up this church, there must be someone who would be suited to be that cornerstone, the foundation 
of the church. And in God's wisdom, Jesus would be suited perfectly to be the cornerstone. It's in Jesus Christ that the church was chosen. God hath chosen us in Him, Ephesians 1 declares, before the foundation of the world. The glory of the church, the beauty of the church is found in Jesus Christ who is prominently displayed as the cornerstone of the church. How amazing it is that God gave unto us who are the members of the church Jesus Christ to be our cornerstone. Two applications then that arise from this truth about the cornerstone, Jesus Christ as the foundation. First this, we must not seek to lay yet another foundation. The inspired writer here does not say that it is our duty to build the foundation. He does not say that it is our duty to fortify, add to, fix, improve the foundation of the church. He speaks of the foundation as being a present reality. The church is built on the cornerstone. The struggle that we as God's people always have is a struggle in having the proper view of the church. And how the devil tempts us to have low thoughts regarding the church, to think evil of her, to be suspicious critical of the church, to evaluate the church and judge that she's rotten, rotten to her core, to judge that the church is compromised even to her very foundation, and then to believe that it's one's duty to take out the jackhammer and start destroying that foundation in order that one can build up another one. We acknowledge that the church, so long as it remains on this earth, is filled with many sins and weaknesses. But although there are sins and weaknesses in the church institute, Let us not blame the foundation. It is not truth's fault that there are sins and weaknesses which are found in the members of the church. Let us not seek to lay again this foundation. It's already been laid. By Jesus Christ Himself. The second application then, let us know truth. If the foundation is the truths of 
the apostles and the prophets as they set for salvation in Jesus Christ who is the cornerstone of the church, then we do well to know these foundational truths. Ignorance of these foundational truths leads to so many problems in the home, the church, the schools, and in the workplace. Indeed, ignorance of these foundational truths is what oftentimes leads one to conclude that the foundational truths are ineffective as the basis of God's church and would motivate one to look for other, another foundation besides the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. May God work in our hearts an earnest zeal and desire to grow in the knowledge of God. May we be students of these truths which are revealed unto us by the apostles and the prophets. Having considered now the foundation of the church, we see that God, upon this foundation, builds. He constructs. Verse 21, in whom, referring to Christ, in whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. The Apostle Paul speaks here of all of the building, and when he speaks of all of the building, he does not mean that there are several different buildings, all of the buildings, but instead he is speaking here of all of the different components or aspects of the one building. When a carpenter begins constructing a home, one of the first things that he must do is gather the materials that are necessary for building that home. And so he gathers a pile of two-by-fours, the siding for the home, the shingles to go on the roof of the home. He gathers the nails, the glue, the windows, the doors, all of the pieces of that home. At first, when it is simply all of the material that's gathered for that home, it is not recognizable as a home. A child might go past a job site and see all the materials laying on the ground there and ask mom and dad inquisitively, what is this? And mom and dad will have to explain that this is the future site of a home. But first the carpenter must come and take all of these pieces and fit these pieces together. And then after he labors on that home, then it becomes more and more clear, aha, this is a house. Well, as it is physically, so it is for the church. All of the building must be fitly framed together. What are then all of the components of the building, all of the pieces of the building that will be put together to make this holy temple? you and me and all of God's people. That's all 
of the building. It's the church Catholic gathered by Jesus Christ from the beginning to the end of history. A church that includes a diversity of people. All of the building. All of the different people that must be fit together. It includes the different races of the earth. Different skin colors. Includes male and female. Includes rich and poor. Those who are powerful and those who are weak. Those who are healthy and those who are sick. All of the building must be framed together. Fitly framed together, the Apostle says here in this verse. The idea of being fitly framed together is that of being joined together with a strong and a lasting bond. What the Apostle speaks here of being fitly framed together, he is speaking of the union of all of the members of the church. But the question is, how? How will all of the members of the church be fitly framed together, united together, so that they constitute one holy temple of the Lord? How is it possible, given all of the diversity in the church, all of the differences that are found within the various members of the church? I enjoy doing some woodworking as a hobby And one of the most difficult things that I find with woodworking is that of the joinery. How do you take two boards and join them seamlessly so that they become one? If it's difficult to do it with boards of consistent thickness and consistent material, how much more difficult is it not to join together People, when there are so many inconsistencies from one person to the next. Maybe we don't even want to be fitly framed together. Maybe we're content being off by ourselves. No desire for union with the rest of the body of Jesus Christ. How? How does this happen? The Apostle in the previous verse, verse 20, teaches us how this building is fitly framed together. Verse 20, you are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's how God is pleased to join together in a most intimate union the members of His church by building them upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's the power of God's Word of truth. 
God sends forth his word from the apostles and the prophets. I should say sent it forth from the apostles and the prophets. And God continues to send forth his word through ministers and through teachers. And God, as he sends forth that word of truth, sends it forth with unstoppable power. The power of the word of God for those who are his children is this. It is a savor of life unto life for them. That word of truth, as it is proclaimed from the pulpit, is used by God to draw his people together and hold them together with the bond of love. It declares unto them not only their sins, their guilt, and the punishment that is due unto them for those sins, but it declares also unto them that there is the mediator, Jesus Christ, who became guilty for our sakes. The word of God, as it is proclaimed unto those who are his children, softens their hearts, bends their will, so that they more and more renounce the hidden things of darkness and walk in righteousness and obedience unto Jehovah God. That's how God is pleased to frame, fitly frame His church. And what those, what then of those who do not love the foundation of the apostles and the prophets Is the word of God then to be considered a failure because it does not fitly frame them together? No. For them it is a savor of death unto death. It is still powerful and it has this effect. It hardens. It closes the door Then the power of this word, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, as God Himself builds up His church. Always God, throughout history, is building up the church. Because God is building up the church, then we then must expect development in the church. The church is not stagnant. The church is not lifeless or inactive, but there is growth and there is progress in the church. The church began with the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. And then all throughout history, God has been building up off of that cornerstone, Jesus Christ. It will not be until Jesus returns and that church is brought into the heavenly mansion prepared by Jesus Christ himself, that then the church will enter into her final resting place. But up until that point in time, we must anticipate growth and development, and we must not then resist growth and development in the church. There is such a thing as a healthy change in the church. 
Now, there can likewise be an unhealthy change, but there is healthy growth and healthy development. It takes wisdom then to discern between that which is good for the growth and development of the church and that which is an unhealthy change, which would not serve to the development of the church. When we, we who are the people of God must use discernment then to develop, is this a change that is for our good? Is this part of God building up the church? Or is this an attack by Satan seeking to destroy the church if it were possible? This text gives unto us guidance to assist us in discerning then between what is a healthy change and what is an unhealthy change. Two questions that this text gives unto us to consider as we evaluate proposals or desire changes to the church. One question to ask and apply to any proposed change is this. Does this proposal bring us closer unto the foundation of the church, which is Jesus Christ? Or does, would this proposal lead us away from Jesus Christ and unto man-centeredness? Twice, the text speaks of the union that we have with Jesus Christ. Verses 21 and 22 repeat the phrase with the opening words, in whom, referring to Christ, in whom all the building fitly framed together. It's in Jesus Christ that the building is framed together. It's in a living relationship with Jesus Christ. And so the question then is, does this change serve to bring us closer unto Jesus Christ? And so children, if dad implements a new rule in the home about what you may not do on Sunday or what you must do on Sunday, must not resist that change and become angry at dad for that rule. He puts that rule in place because he wants you to know and love Jesus Christ. Then a second question that may be applied as we evaluate whether something is for the growth of the church or something is to the hurt and the harm of the church is this question. Does this decision promote and encourage union in the church? So first, does it promote a relationship with Jesus Christ? Second now, does this promote a relationship with those who are the other members of the church? The text is at pains to emphasize the unity of the church. Verse 21, in whom all the building fitly framed together to God, 
takes all of the pieces, all of the members of the church, and assembles us together. Verse 22 repeats that. In whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God. And so the question is, does this decision serve to promote the unity and the fellowship of the church of Christ? Or does this decision promote disunity, bitterness, envy, jealousy in the church? But always the church is growing because God builds it up. It might not grow in the way that we want it to grow. It might not grow in the rate at the rate that we would wish it would grow. God teaches us patience and a humble reliance upon Him. But always we have this confidence God builds His church. He builds it for a specific reason. He builds up the walls of His church so that He might inhabit this building. Verse 22, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. How amazing is this thought that God builds up His church not just so that you and I can inhabit this building. But God builds up His church so that the glorious, the heavenly, the almighty God can tabernacle with us. It's not as if God lacked a home. It's not as if God had no other choice, had nowhere else to live. He's the God who declares that if He would hungry grow, He would not tell us. For heaven and earth and all that is therein belong to Him. He's the God who is eternally exalted in the heavens. And yet God chooses the church to be His habitation. Habitation is a residence, a primary residence. It's what one calls home. The love of God for us is so great that God is pleased to dwell with us in the church. Behold the personal language that the Apostle uses here. He declares of you that this is true. In whom ye, you, also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. He does not state this generally as a truth that For those who are the members of the truth, they 
the third person are builded together as an habitation of God through the Spirit. He does not state this wistfully, desiring this to be true, hopeful that perhaps this will be true. No, he states it as reality for you personally. You are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. You who once were children of darkness and who delighted in that which was sinful. You who were adopted by God everlastingly into His covenant of grace. You who were purchased with the blood of God's only begotten Son. You who are preserved in that salvation until at last you who are brought into that heavenly mansion of Jesus Christ, you are the habitation of God through the Holy Spirit. From beginning to end, this church is of God. Foundation is of God through the cornerstone Jesus Christ. The building up and the construction of the walls is of God through His Word and through His Spirit. As the foundation of the apostles and the prophets is declared. And God builds this home up so that He can habitat and habit that home with His people into all eternity. Amen. Let us pray. Father and our God in heaven, we thank Thee that we can learn Jesus Christ through Thy Word which is given unto us. We thank Thee for the home of Thy church, which Thou dost give unto us. We thank Thee for the security and safety that we have within Thy church as we are built upon the foundation of Thy Son, Jesus Christ. Wilt Thou fill us with Thy Spirit, sanctify us in the week that is ahead, cleanse us, from all unrighteousness, even the sins of this worship service. For Jesus' sake we pray this. Amen.